Well, good evening, and welcome to our online service. Uh, it's really good that you can join with us as we worship our God together. Uh, this evening after church, we are having our coffee time at 10 past 7. Uh, this will be the last coffee time uh, that we're going to have online uh, after church, because next Sunday, uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, we are going to have in-person services in the evening. Uh, so you're very welcome to join us uh, for that, uh, but we're not going to have the online uh, coffee uh, after today. Well, I'm going to begin by reading some words from Psalm 136, reminding us of uh, the great love of God. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. Our first song we're going to sing is This is Amazing Grace.
If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read this evening from verses 1 to 30. Uh, In this chapter, we're going to look at the Passover, and as we're going through Matthew's gospel and we're leading up to the death of Jesus, uh, Matthew presents us with a Passover motif that overshadows all that is going on. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of these events, uh, which... Uh, are written of in Exodus uh, chapter 12. So we're going to read verses 1 to 30, uh, reading about the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs." Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." The blood will be a sign for you on the, ha- on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the fourteenth day until the evening of the twenty-first day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses, and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast." Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as the lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening and we are amazed at your grace in forgiving us of our sins. As the Egyptians faced your judgment, so should we, because we have sinned against you and we deserve it. But we are so thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood and took our place on the cross, and that the wrath of God, which was deserved by us, fell on him. And as we come to Easter, we pray that many people who do not yet know of your grace will come to know and respond to it. We think of members of our families and work colleagues and neighbors and friends, and we ask that you would deliver them from judgment, just as you delivered your people here, and that you would grant eternal life. We see in this passage as well, and we will see in the book of Matthew as we look at that gospel tonight, how we commemorate your deliverance together as your people through eating and drinking. We are reminded again of, of how much we miss being able to do these things together at the moment. And we pray that the day would soon come when we can meet around the table and speak together again freely of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. But until that time, help us to be encouraging one another in other ways, reminding one another of what you have done for us, that we would be built up together in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and this evening we're going to be uh, from verses 17 to verse 30. Matthew 26, uh, 17 to 30. And in Matthew's gospel, we've been uh, leading up uh, to the death of Jesus. Uh, from the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, uh, we come into the final week of of uh, uh, before Jesus dies on the cross as he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. And Matthew has been slowly building us up to the cross. And in fact, the, the whole of his gospel really has been a journey up to this uh, point. In the very first chapter, when teaching about his birth, Matthew writes in chapter 1, verse 21, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. But now things start to move more quickly towards Jesus' death. Because in chapter 26, Matthew is preparing us as his readers for that event. And today we come really into the final 24 hours before he dies. Uh, last week we saw how Jesus predicted the timing of it as just a couple of days away. We saw how he was prepared for his burial uh, and Judas was going to betray him. But the cross is now looming larger and larger before him. But as we come to read of Jesus' death, Matthew is keen to show us that this is not some random act of history. It is history, but there is much meaning behind what is going on here. The details Matthew provides us with answers a very important question. Why did Jesus die? That's the purpose really behind the passage that we're looking at tonight. Matthew is giving us some context around the death of Jesus so that we can understand why this death happened. Because this death was not like any ordinary death. This death ultimately was to save his people from their sins. And we see that as we read verses 17 to 30. So follow along with me as I read. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, in this uh, section of Matthew's Gospel, we see three reasons why Jesus died. Three reasons. We're going to see that it was because of a divine plan. We're going to see that it was because of an evil plot. And we're going to see that it was because of a new Passover. So a divine plan, an evil plot, and a new Passover. So first of all, Jesus died because of a divine plan. Throughout this chapter, we see that Jesus is not just an innocent victim uh, caught up in forces that were beyond his control. Rather, Matthew shows us that Jesus was in complete control of the events of his death. This was all part of the sovereign plan of God. We saw this a bit last week because in verse 2 of Matthew 26, remember Jesus said he was going to die at Passover. And here we see the Passover again. It is important to note, Matthew wants us to get this clear, that Jesus died at Passover. Notice how it's mentioned even three times in the first uh, three verses that I read, verses 17, 18, and 19. That word Passover comes up again and again and again. As I've said before, there is a, a Passover motif that is over all of what is going on here. Jesus intended to die at Passover. Now we'll look at the, the reasons for this um, in, in a bit, but just keep that in your mind. He intended to die at Passover. Uh, verse 17, notice with me there, mentions the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this was a, a separate feast to Passover, but as we saw earlier when we read Exodus chapter 12, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was uh, immediately after the Passover, and because these feasts were one after the other, and both were linked to celebrating the Exodus, they were amalgamated into one feast, and they would call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Jesus would always have kept the Passover. As a Jewish person, obeying God's law, he would keep the Passover every single year. And in fact, in this instance, he is the head of the household during the Passover. And the disciples come to him, and they ask him in verse 17, where do you want us to eat the Passover? The disciples ask Jesus this because he's obviously the one in charge of the celebrations. Again, Jesus is in control of the proceedings. And this is interesting because he knows from verse 2 that he's going to die at the Passover. So when they say to Jesus, uh, where are we going to eat the Passover? The obvious response that most people would give if they knew they're going to die there would be, well, actually, uh, let, let's give it a miss this year. Or let's go and celebrate it well away from this area. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't run away. He doesn't avoid it. He purposefully, knowing what will happen, walks into it. 
He's in control. And in verse 18, we see that Jesus uh, has made arrangements for the meal with a certain man. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us about this man. Uh, In fact, throughout the Gospels, this man seems a little bit uh, enigmatic. Uh, Mark, in his Gospel, tells us that they would recognize him because he was carrying a pitcher of water. And that was uh, an obvious uh, recognition because it was women that would carry pitchers of water. So a man doing it would be a way of identifying him. But even there, there is secrecy involved in where the Passover meal was going to take place. And I believe the secrecy is deliberate because Judas Iscariot is looking, we read uh, this uh, last week in verse 16, looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And Jesus was not going to be arrested until the time was right for him. And so the secrecy probably stopped Judas from bringing Jesus' enemies to him too quickly. Jesus is in control of the timing. And we see that when he tells the disciples what to say to that certain man, he is in control of the timing. He says, tell him, my appointed time is near. Now, when they are saying this to this certain man, they're not just using a phrase to make a reservation at an Airbnb. This has meaning behind it, this phrase, my appointed time is near. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus often speaks in this kind of way when he refers to his death. Uh, Often John's gospel will have Jesus saying something like, my hour has not yet come. And Matthew is using that kind of language here. This means there is an appointed time for him to die. And it's God's timing. And Jesus, as God, is in complete control of what is going on here. And so in verse 19, the disciples did what Jesus says, and they go and they prepare the Passover. And that would be preparing the room, preparing the food, uh, and so on. A bit like we would prepare Christmas. But what we ought to notice here is how Jesus is in complete control of the events. This is a divine plan. And as we uh, will see throughout this chapter, that Jesus knows and is in control of what is going on. Judas is plotting secretly, but Jesus knows all about it and is in control of it all. Now, Jesus dying at Passover was a divine plan. And this is backed up, actually, by other places in the New Testament. So the birth of Jesus was part of this plan. In Galatians 4, uh, verse 4, says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman and born under the law. So it was at the right appointed time. Speaking of Jesus' death, Paul says in Romans 5, 6, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And most clearly in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was part of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
Now, this is really good news because it means that God did this on purpose and so he loves you and me on purpose. It means he doesn't just want to put up with us. It means that he planned to save us because he wants us in his kingdom. Because we know it was because God loves sinners that he sent his son to die. This is good news. But the divine plan is not all there is to see here. Yes, Jesus' death was because of a divine plan. But Jesus' death was also because of an evil plot. In verse 20, uh, there is a change of scene. We are now at the Passover meal in the room of the certain man. And it is evening, and Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples. Now, if we were to go to someone's house and start reclining uh, at their table, uh, that would be pretty offensive. But at this time, in, uh, and also around the world in certain places today, this is how they eat their meals. They would lean on their left elbow with their head towards the table and their feet well away from it. Uh, and this would leave the right hand free to take food. And they didn't have uh, or don't have a knife and a fork. Uh, they actually would use their the bread held in their right hand to scoop up uh, whatever is being eaten. And as I said, this wasn't just a Greco-Roman thing. Uh, this still happens uh, all over the world today. Uh, it's how people eat. The table at this Passover would have been in a U-shape uh, so that people could see one another around the table. Um, it, it, it was not like the painting of the Last Supper that Leonardo da Vinci did where there is one long table. Uh, that is not an accurate depiction of what it would have been like. Uh, it would have been in a U-shape so that everyone could take part together. And what it was basically was an intimate family meal around a table. Now in verse uh, uh, 21, at this point, uh, the disciples are uh, eating with Jesus. And the way that the Passover meal worked was that the meal was split up into four parts, uh, broken up by four cups, which seemed to have been used uh, in the way that we might raise a toast. And in between these four cups, different aspects of the Passover celebration took place. So they would begin with the first cup, where a blessing of some kind was given, and then they would wash their hands before having bitter herbs in which the bread was dipped. Now we saw this in Exodus chapter 12. And all of this symbolized different aspects of that exodus. But it was at the point of eating the bread with the dip, almost like a starter, I suppose, that Jesus says in verse 21, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now this was a very unusual thing to say at a meal. Uh, this is like at Christmas dinner, someone making some accusation about a member of the family around the table that no one else knows about. And it's kind of out of the blue. It's almost like the kind of thing that you would think would happen on an EastEnders Christmas special. 
But as the reader, we know who the betrayer is. We're not surprised. We saw who this was in verses 14 and 16. But the disciples at this point, well, at least 11 of them, don't know who it is. And we read that they were all sad. And we can assume that Judas at least was playing the part of being sad. And they began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Now, in in other translations um, of the Bible, we see them ask Jesus more directly, is it I? But I think the NIV has the, 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 the kind of meaning correct here, in that I don't think they were genuinely inquiring whether it was them. Rather, they were saying, surely you don't think it's me. Well, Jesus seems to identify in verse 23 who it is. Well, it appears he identifies, but what really is going on here is that Jesus is saying, it's one of you. He doesn't point Judas out necessarily, but he says, one of you who dipped the hand in the bowl with me is my betrayer. To dip the hand in the bowl with Jesus is saying that it's someone that is intimate with me, someone who is a a close family friend. Because sharing food, dipping hand in the bowl, is an intimate thing to do. The Passover was a family meal. And Jesus is shocking the disciples by saying, it's one of you. It's one of my family. It wouldn't have been a surprise if it was one of the chief priests or the, the elders of the people or the Pharisees or Sadducees. But the shock is, Jesus is saying, It's one that's dipped the hand in the bowl with me. It's my family. Jesus actually is picking up on words from David in Psalm 41 here. In Psalm 41 verse uh, verse 9, uh, David speaks of his enemies. And he says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. Well, this does bring us to a dilemma, or at least it should make us think. Is Jesus' death a result of a divine plan or an evil plot? And the answer is yes to both. And verse 24 brings this out. Look Look at verse 24 with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So the first part of that verse speaks of the Son of Man going just as it is written about him. So the Old Testament scriptures over and over again speak of the death of Jesus. And so if it was written about him in God's word, then it is God's word, then it was planned by God. God said this would happen. And this is divine sovereignty. The complete control of God over all events. And here, the events leading to the death of God's son. But then the second part of the verse attributes responsibility to Judas Iscariot. 
we see that he betrays Jesus, and it would have been better for him not to have been even born. Such is the judgment of God against him. And this responsibility given to Judas is outlined even more clearly in verse 25. There, Judas turns to Jesus and thinks he can deceive him. And like the other 11 disciples, he says, Surely you don't mean me. But unlike the other 11, he calls Jesus rabbi. Notice that, uh, if you will. Uh, In verse 22, 11 disciples say, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And here, Judas says, Surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And in Matthew's gospel, only those who are not disciples call Jesus rabbi or teacher. Matthew is showing us here that Judas is not a member of the family of faith. And Jesus shows Judas that he knows what's going on when he answers, you have said so. Judas knows now that he is exposed and so knows that he would have to act quickly if he was going to betray Jesus. Well, if God planned Judas' treason, how can Judas really be responsible? Well, we cannot fully comprehend the ways of God here. We cannot resolve this tension and just put it neatly in a box. But throughout the Bible, we see God teach us that God is in complete control of all things, and at the same time, we are responsible for the evil we commit. Although what happens here is part of a divine plan, Judas is by no means just some pawn in a divine game. And for us too, we cannot blame the evil we commit on a sovereign God. We have to own it and we have to confess our sin. What I would say though is this, and we will see this very clearly as as we go on. God is not some far-off God who is uncaring about our sin, some kind of of puppet master playing some kind of game with humanity. We know this because God became humanity. God takes our our sins so seriously and loves us so much that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. And so whilst there is much about God's sovereign plan that we cannot understand, He himself is not detached from the plan because within the plan of God, he suffers himself. He loves us so much that his plan involves dying in our place for our sins. He's not detached. He suffers with us and he suffers for us. And we see this most clearly in verses 26 to 30. We see that whilst Jesus did die because of a divine plan and an evil plot, what we also see is that he died because of a new Passover. Again, we come to a new scene in verse 26. It is now a bit later in the meal. After the bread and dip, they would have had another cup or a toast, and then they would sing, and then they would have the main meal, which was the lamb. And that's the place where we are now. They would have had bread with the lamb. Uh, As I've said, they they would have 
uh, not had a knife and fork. The lamb would have been eaten by being scooped up by the bread. And the father of the household at the Passover would have had responsibility for distributing the bread to those around the table. And the father of the household would explain the meaning behind what was going on in the meal, what all these different aspects symbolized. And in Exodus chapter 12, we read about the children asking the father, what is the meaning of all these things? And that is what happens at the Passover. Usually the youngest child asks the father of the house, what is the meaning of all these things? And Jesus here, as the head of this family, is explaining what all of these symbols mean. And as Jesus does this, Jesus tells the story of Passover in a way that it has not been told before. He updates the story to show that the Passover is all about him. As we've read uh, earlier in Exodus 12, the Passover was a celebration of the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. In the final plague, the one which forced Pharaoh's hand, the angel of death came and killed all the firstborn children in Egypt. But salvation was available for those who had the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house. For those who put their trust in God's plan of salvation, the angel of death passed over them and they were led out of Egypt into the promised land. In making this meal about him, his body, his blood, Jesus is establishing a new Passover, a new deliverance. And Jesus shows us this Passover with some new words which would have had no place in any previous Passover meal. So first of all, uh, we read, Jesus uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. As the bread has just been broken and given for them, uh, so Jesus' body will be given too. The bread is a, a symbol of this. Just as this meal that they are eating is associated with deliverance from Egypt, now it reminds them of and celebrates the death of Jesus. But what does Jesus' death have to be remembered for? What are his disciples celebrating? What is the deliverance when they eat together? Well, bread, uh, is, as you know, is food. And although it's a specific type of food, bread in the Bible uh, was often used as a synonym for all kinds of food, for all food. So if we are hungry and someone gives us bread, then we're going to eat it because we're hungry. And here, the bread is a reminder of the deep hunger, the deep need that we have for forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is telling us to eat this bread to remind us of his body, which was given to provide for that deep hunger for the forgiveness of sins. And what we have here is a substitutionary picture. Jesus 
will die for our sins. And we eat the bread which symbolizes his body, which was given in place of our body. As the bread is eaten, we are reminded that it was because his body died for me that I can be forgiven of my sins. And that deeper hunger, that need for forgiveness so I can have relationship with God is fulfilled. But in addition to the bread, Jesus also took the cup. And like the bread, he gave thanks. This cup was in the meal, the third of those four cups. And Jesus used it to give another symbol, something else to remember. He told them to drink from it. And then he says, in verse 20, uh, 28, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the Old Testament of the Bible, whenever a covenant was made, it was ratified with a blood sacrifice. This was to show how the covenant was binding and what would happen if it was broken. That is, those who broke it would die. And after Israel left Egypt... God made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. This was the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were God's law given to Israel, and they were blessed by God as they followed his law. After the Ten Commandments and other laws were given on Mount Sinai, in Exodus we read of this ceremony. It's in Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 to 8, and I'll read this to you. Uh, Some uh, bulls have been sacrificed just before this. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, "We we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the bread and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, the blood sprinkled on the altar, that represented the fact that God would forgive the sins of the people when they failed. The blood of the animal was in the place of the blood of the people who deserved to die for their sin. So that was why the blood was sprinkled on the altar. God would forgive the sin of the people because a sacrifice had been made for sin. But the blood sprinkled on the people was the sealing of the people's part of the agreement. We will obey, they said. If we do not obey, then there is blood to be shed. That's what this means. And this is called the blood of the covenant. Now, a covenant is a promise And this covenant promise was two ways, just like a marriage covenant is two ways between a husband and a wife. God will forgive sins, and the people will obey God's commands. That's the two part of of the covenant. And the blood ceremony was the ratifying of that covenant. Just like uh, we have have ceremonies today uh, which involve people signing a treaty uh, with a special pen. Uh, That kind uh, kind of ceremony is what is going on here, to ratify this covenant. And Jesus takes this Old Testament language and uses it about himself. The problem with the Old Covenant, 
which you'll see if you read the Old Testament and if you read the book of Hebrews, which is a good commentary on this, is that the people continually failed to uphold their part of the bargain. They didn't obey. And so sacrifices were needed again and again and again and again for sin. But God promised in Jeremiah a new covenant where God's law will be written on their hearts so that they'll be forgiven of their sins and then the law would be on their hearts so that they will be able to obey and live for God. And this is what Jesus has in mind as he speaks to his disciples about the cup. This new covenant, this promise that God has that there won't need to be animal sacrifices anymore because the law will be on the heart, comes through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Now remember, the covenant had two parts. God will forgive sins, people will obey. But Jesus did both. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He fulfilled it perfectly. And he was the once and for all blood sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And this sacrifice we read uh, in verse 27, or 28 rather, is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And there are many, and have been many, who have been forgiven of their sins because they have believed that Jesus' death on the cross has paid the penalty for them. We can be right with God. We can have eternal life. We can live from changed hearts that have God's law written on them if we believe what Jesus says here. Now, sin must be paid for. And you can pay for it yourself for eternity in hell facing God's wrath. Because there is no longer now an animal sacrifice you can make. There is one sacrifice the sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus is the only way we can be delivered from the wrath of God. He died for our sins. The new Passover is a new deliverance. A deliverance from sin and death and hell. So would you become part of the many who have sought forgiveness of sins through him. There's no other way. There's no other way of deliverance from the wrath of God, which, as, as we've seen uh, in the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, for example, that, that day is coming. This is the only way. The sacrifice of Jesus. And when we have believed this, and we have eternal life, we can look forward to a time when we can eat and drink with Jesus in heaven. That's the meaning behind verses 29 and 30. I tell you, Jesus says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now 
on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, in the normal Passover meal, there would have been a hymn and then a final cup, the fourth one. And so in verse 30, Jesus and his disciples, we read, sing a hymn, the hymn that would have preceded the final cup, and then they left. So I understand this to mean that Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. He is waiting until we can uh, join him in heaven so he can eat and drink with us. And we read in the book of Revelation about a wedding feast that we can be part of as the people of God. A time of joy and celebration that will last forever. And as we've seen in previous parts of Matthew's gospel, that day is coming soon. Jesus will return, we will meet him in the air, and we will eat and we will drink with him. So as well as this meal, looking back to the cross and reminding us of what Jesus has done for us, he has given his body in our place, he has poured out his blood as a sacrifice of atonement, it also looks forward to the time when, as God's people, we will sit around his table and eat and drink with him in celebration forever. It's a wonderful picture and a wonderful hope that we have to look forward to. And so now, as God's people, until the day when Jesus returns, we continue to celebrate the new Passover as a family of God. Jesus is our head. We are the family around the table. And we celebrate our deliverance from sin. We acknowledge again that we believe in it. We acknowledge that we are sustained in the present by the sacrifice that he has made. And we look forward together to the day when we'll be forever with the Lord and with all the saints and have fellowship together forever. And we do that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We come around the Lord's table. And it would be so appropriate, I would, would dearly love to be able tonight to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It, I mean, what is more appropriate uh, following this passage than to, to eat the bread and drink the cup together. But that's not to be. We can't do that tonight. But let's make sure that the absence of the Lord's Supper, of being able to celebrate it, and for, for many that's been a long time, hasn't it? Let's, let, let, let that make us hungrier for it. Hungrier for the time when again we can eat the bread and drink the cup as one whole congregation. I look forward to that day, but more we should be looking forward to the day to come when we can join our Lord in heaven. But we also don't have to wait for the Lord's Supper being formally um, done before we can remember what Jesus has done for us. We should be thankful all the time that his body was given and his blood was shed so that our sins can be forgiven. Why did Jesus die? Well, the overall answer is he died to save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew is showing us. 
But this came about through the divine plan, an evil plot, and a new Passover. And let us give thanks to God that these things took place. Well, our final song, uh, which I think is, is a, a great and appropriate song uh, to respond to this passage with, is the song, The Mystery of the Cross, which talks about us being seated around God's table. Once we were God's enemies, now we're around God's table. And the response is to say, Jesus, thank you.
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.